You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. Those of you older than kindergarten, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open them to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, right about in the middle is the book of Psalms. If you keep going to the right, you'll find Proverbs, and right after Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. Okay, If you hit prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you've gone too far. Head back to the left. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship in your bulletin. And if you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table we'd love to give to you. That's our gift to you. Um, but any way you can, it's great to have the text in front of you as we're going through it. A couple weeks ago, we started what is going to be about a nine-month investigation of those things that you and I, all of us, uh, cling to throughout life to find meaning. And a lot of times we, we're confused into thinking that this is some kind of modern-day trek, that this is kind of unique to, a, to being an American or something of that nature, but it's not. Humans do this. We look to provide our lives with meaning from things the writer of Ecclesiastes is actually writing about that very endeavor. What does it look like to, to pour your life and, and your resources and everything into finding meaning in things? The, the answer that we keep getting, and we've gotten the last two weeks, we'll keep getting over and over, honestly, is, is a, a, simple, a simple line. It's actually two lines. He says, vanity of vanities, or it's like chasing after the wind. We get that twice this morning, actually. And as we've looked at these different things, the, the, the reality hits us that not only are, are we trying to seek meaning, but we have to have the tools, right? How, do, how are you going to go about this endeavor if you don't have the tools to do so? And this morning, our text actually addresses the main tool. How are we going to find meaning in life? Well, the, what seems to be the self-evident thing to do would be to apply ourselves to, to wisdom, to understanding, and then we'd find it. What we're going to find this morning is that our teacher says that even that is meaningless. Uh, as is our habit in the church, if you, if you have your place in the text, if you'd stand in, or, in honor of God's word, if you can. We're going to be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Just remember, this is God's very word, okay? I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word given that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? 
Father, you know everyone in this room. You know what we've brought into this room with us. The stuff, the story of our lives, uh, the, the story of our week, perhaps just even our morning. Some of us feel like we've already fallen off the rails. We need, we need uh, grace to get back on them. Some of us are just bored. barely keeping our eyes open. Others of us are eager, but maybe not for the right things. And some of us are just desperate to hear from you. In truth, we're all desperate to hear from you. So Lord, we we ask that you would speak to us. Would you preach to us? Do you let your words come forward? Christ and his cross come to the fore. And let me just kind of fall into the background, Lord. We need you to preach your gospel to us. So we ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, some of us are new here this morning into the series, so let me give us, get, kind of get us back up to speed, okay? I said a couple of weeks ago that what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. That's not something that we're familiar with. We don't have wisdom literature in our culture. I don't even know if we have literature in our culture anymore, but I mean, we have blogs, but they're not wise or literature. So anyway, but the point is like, we don't have a category for this. What it was in the ancient world was a way for, for, um, the older, more experienced people to write, uh, to write kind of teachings, sayings, um, ways of understanding things that would then be passed on to the younger generations. Specifically, it was for, uh, I mean, if you read like the book of Proverbs in the, in the old Testament, it starts, you understand it's, it's meant to be instruction from a father to, to his son. Right? It's a, that, that's what it was for. Um, and one would imagine that in wisdom literature, if someone is writing wisdom literature, which obviously if they're writing something called wisdom literature, they would make a claim about themselves, right? That they are wise. That, that they would be the last person. That this person would be the last person to think of all things, uh, of all the things that he could possibly say, the last person to say that meaninglessness is found in wisdom, right? It, it's like writing in the first page of your book, like you don't need to keep reading this and then expecting other people to buy it and read it. And yet that's exactly what our, our author does this morning. He takes in, in, a, in, in a very um, compact area here, he takes, in these just few verses, he takes all that he's about to do and all that he's saying, and like, here's what I've tried to do, and he's basically saying, and none of it, none of it works. And we'll get to the specifics of that in a minute. But the important thing to see is that wisdom, as a way of looking at the world, as a way of trying to understand, in fact, we're, we'll even deconstruct this phrase, how, understand how the world works at the end of the day, uh, cannot provide us with meaning. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. We're going to be looking at three things. We're going to look at using wisdom, we're going to look at having wisdom, and then, Lord willing, we're going to look at what true wisdom is. Okay? You ready? All right. Let's, let's start with using wisdom. Or, yeah, let's start with using wisdom, looking first at the process. Now, before I even get to this, we should define wisdom, right? So... Some of you have been in the church for a long time and you're expecting a certain answer for this of what wisdom is. But it's important to understand that as we look at this book in particular, that when we address wisdom, we need to understand it primarily from the way that folks in that culture would have understood it. So in the ancient Near East, wisdom as a, as a concept had to do with cleverness, had to do with being able to navigate life, being able to walk through this, this kind of meandering path and keep from falling off of it. 
and, and you see this in things like the book of Proverbs. In the, even in the Bible, as the, the things that we call wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, they, they are trying to give us a way to navigate through life. It, it's meant to talk about um, skill or cleverness. It's the same when, when the Old Testament talks about wisdom. It's the same word they would use to talk about someone who is a very skilled craftsman. Right? Someone who is skilled at playing music is, is the, the same word is used. They are wise in their music. And so someone who is wise with life is someone who is skilled. It, it assumes a kind of an if-then relationship to life, right? If this, you do that. If this, then you do that. And when we think of wisdom, when we think of uh, wise uh, people, when we think of the teachings of the wise, oftentimes the reality is that most of us are thinking of some kind of grizzled old man with a long white beard and curled up in the lotus position or something, like he's sitting on a mountaintop and you don't, you know, every, we, we have this category, someone who is, who is there to help the younger get through life. I mean, every Luke has his Obi-Wan, right? Every, every Harry has his Dumbledore, um, Every Talmachus has his mentor. Uh, This is is what we think of. And so we have to understand that as we come into this text, that's what's going on. Can I find meaning in my ability to navigate life, in in all of the teaching of collective wisdom to be able to navigate life? And here's here's where we go with it. Look down at at verse verse 12 uh, through 14. Because the first thing that's done is our teacher deals with wisdom as an instrument to be used. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done in, under heaven. Now stop there. Because this is, this is an important kind of phrase here. If you're going to try and convince people that wisdom or that anything, wisdom, sexuality, money, fame, knowledge, power, if you're going to convince people that the search after those things is meaningless, then you best be able to show that you've actually pursued them to the nth degree, right? Because all of us are thinking like, yeah, you, th- you say that wisdom is meaningless. Maybe you're just not wise enough. Me, I'm good. Like, we're, I'm good. I can make this work. And what he's trying to get across is, no, no, you don't understand. I, I, I'm the guy who's got this. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom. Okay? Now, those two words are very important. To seek is a, is a, is a word that kind of means to investigate, that he's, um, he's looking at it systematically. He's trying to break it down and come up with it's what we would consider like an investigation, component parts. The word search there, however, is the same word that's used um, in the Old Testament when um, God sends out spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. And think with me for a minute, because if you're a spy and you're spying out enemy territory, you don't give it a cursory glance over, right? You're looking from every possible angle to find the weak points. And that's what he's trying to get across. He investigated, he brought things down to its component parts, and he looked intently at them to try and find their weak points. He was spying out wisdom. And now, as he's spying out things that are happening, he, he talks about two other things. That he's doing it by wisdom, and it means wisdom is the instrument that he's using. I'm looking at life, I'm seeking, and I'm, I'm spying out things by the, 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 the tool of wisdom. And he says, by everything that's done under heaven. Now, if you were here last week, and even the week before, you know that that's kind of a presupposition. What I mean by that is that 
Our writer writes about that a, a bunch of times. He's talking about what happens under the sun, what happens under heaven, which is basically the same phrase. And what he means is, let me show you what I'm looking at is the world of experience. I'm looking at things the way that we would talk about it. He's looking at things from a secularized point of view. For a moment, he's not even letting it enter into his thought world as he's applying these things, that there is a, an ultimate and personal God who has defined reality. That's not on his view screen. Why? Because for most of us, it's not on our view screen either. At least not when we initially engage in these questions. And so, seek and search is, gives us a comprehensive study. Wisdom gives us the means of that study, and under heaven gives the presupposition. Now, if you keep going, he, he talks about this interesting thing. He says it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. Some of your, some of your translations may even say like it's a, it's, a, it's a sad business or it's an evil even. Some, some translations will say that. What is going on here? We'll get exactly what is going on here in a second, but what's important is to understand that when he says that God has given this, what he's highlighting is God's sovereignty in the midst of all of these things. And that's a really important thing, because when I say sovereignty, I mean, uh, the writer is kind of getting across the idea that, that these things aren't surprising to God. He's not kind of caught up in the world process like we are. He's not kind of looking around going, oh, that's interesting, I didn't see that coming. Like, he, he's, this is, he is sovereign in this. He has given this task to humanity. He is not as confused as the rest of us. And the reason that it's unhappy, un, unhappy leads us to verse 14. Look there now. He, he says that it's, it's a vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Remember that word vanity means meaningless. It means, it means um, it's like the, the breath on a cold morning that you can't grasp. Striving after the wind means, you know, wind's blowing. Go chase it. How's that work for you? Go catch it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why is it striving after the wind? Because life doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And those of us that think it makes sense are either fooling ourselves or our experience of it isn't very extensive. Life does not make sense. And that's why he gives us the conclusion. Look at verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now, this is the first time he says this. He'll say it again in chapter 7. Uh, but this is the first time he says it. Um, the word lacking there, last week we, um, we talked about the fact that the, the, the preacher was saying, what, what can a man gain? Remember that? What can a man gain? We, we looked at it as it means profit, right? What, what will it profit a man uh, for, for all of his labor, all of his toil? Well, this word lacking is like, it's the opposite. It's literally the opposite in the original of that. And so what he's saying is that what is crooked, what we see as crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. The issue that he's talking about is, is the frustration that comes with the fact that we think it should be able to be made straight. We think it should be able to be counted. There, there's, a, there's an incongruity there. What, what is basically being talked about is wrapped up in what the Bible says is wrong with the world. The world isn't as it always was. The world is, is fundamentally broken. And it wasn't created this way. It was subjected to this by us. But it's not just that, that we, we kind of turned away from God and, and the world kind of went out of joint, but that we went out of joint. And that 
Let me back up, <laughs> because I'm, I'm forgetting that many of us might not be as familiar with this story. God creates the world good. It's a good world. And he creates the world good and puts humanity over it to be his, his uh, for lack of a better word, loving administrators of it. We're given an authority. It's an authority that we are to act on through the world for its flourishing, uh, being in a dependent relationship with God. We depend on him, and his rule comes through us over to the world. But in the, in the course of time, we decided that that wasn't good enough, and we believed the lie. That lie was basically this. You don't need him. You can be him. You don't need God. You can be God. And that is exactly what the teacher is talking about here. We want to be God. We want to define good and evil, straight and crooked. Crooked there doesn't mean moral. It means literally like straight and crooked. You know, we want to be able to define what is straight, what is crooked, what is gain and what is lacking. And we get frustrated when we come to life and it doesn't seem to... It's not... I can't straighten this thing. And we assume that that means that it should be straight in the first place. We want to be able to define what is right, what is wrong. We want to make the world in our image. We, we, want, uh, we don't like what God says is good and evil. We don't like the way God says things work. We don't like it. And we want it changed. And so what we do is we throw our eggs into the basket of our ability to figure out how the world, quote-unquote, works. As if it's some kind of independent machine. Right? Tell me how the world... The world doesn't work it's not a clock. The world doesn't work at all. It's not independent. So we throw our eggs into that basket, but the problem is that wisdom cannot hold the freight of that hope. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And so if wisdom as a tool ends up meaningless, well, then what about just wisdom in the first place, right? And that's what he gets at in the second part. Look down at verses 16 and 17. He talks about having wisdom uh, let's, let's just walk through the text there. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. What is he saying? He's like, look, I understand this thing. Remember what we just said before? If you're going to say that wisdom is somehow um, not going to fulfill you, it's not going to live up to your expectations, your hopes, you better be able to prove that you've actually gone to its utmost. And that's what he's trying to get across. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over me in Jerusalem, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is an important thing, because what he's about to do is not to fault wisdom. Because if he faults wisdom, that's just, like I said, it's like writing, please stop reading this book in the first chapter and handing it to somebody. He's not faulting wisdom. He's faulting his experience of wisdom. In other words, what he's saying is, I had hopes that wisdom would be able to do something for me, accomplish something that I wanted, but my experience was it couldn't do it. It couldn't manage it. It couldn't hold my expectations. Wisdom per se is not the problem. The deficiency is whether our experience of it, whether it can deliver, okay? So he says, like, look, I, I've had great experience of, of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know it, to know wisdom, but not just wisdom, to know madness and folly. Now, that word madness there is important because in the, in the Old Testament, that word is used primarily of a particular way of being. Now, we think madness and we think, like, cuckoo. That's not what he's talking about. Because in the scriptures, what madness is, is kind of a boastful arrogance that claims its independence over God. 
I can do this on my own. I can be this. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the craziness of, of, uh, of the king in, in the book of Daniel who decides, I basically am God. And what does he end up in next? If you're familiar with the story, he ends up drooling in the field. Like he's, he ends up being an animal for a few years. God says, you're mad. Let me show you how mad. You, like, that's what madness is. Folly is, of course, the opposite of wisdom. He's looked into madness. He's looked into folly. But he says that this, too, is a, is a, is a, a striving after the wind. And then he brings to the next conclusion, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. I know we, we use that word all the time, right? Vexation. I'm vexed. I'm terribly vexed. Like, we don't even know what that means. It means um, frustration. In the original, it literally means anger. Get a lot of wisdom, you're going to be angry. A lot. Or sorrowful. The one who has a lot of wisdom is angry. The one who increases knowledge increases their own sorrow. Why? Why? Why, why if, you, if you seem to think, like, if you have wisdom, why would you increase your anger and frustration? Why would you increase your sorrow? Because it can't figure anything out. There are incongruities in the world, right? You track it with me? Incongruities. We think, I do this, this should happen, and then it doesn't happen. We think, look, if you're going to lead this life, it's going to lead you here, and it, it leads you the other place. People who make all the right decisions end up in tatters. People who just make mistake after mistake after mistake seem to be doing well. I'm like, what is going on? And the biggest incongruity of them all is injustice, right? It's injustice. We look at the world and we go, things just are not right. Those who do right should have right things happen. Those who do wrong should be immediately met with, with, with uh, judgment or, or punishment or some form of, they should get theirs. We want karma, basically, right? And when it doesn't work, all we're left with is anger and sorrow. Because the world just does not, it seems to conspire against what we think it should be. The way we think it should work, it constantly strives against. And so we are left with striving after the wind, chasing after a breeze. It can never be caught, and it can never hold the freight of our hopes. Now, let me, let me try and apply this, if I can, for a minute, because it is strange. <laughs> it, 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 if it's not strange to you, it should be strange to look at a book of wisdom, a book which is trying to get across this idea and have that really wise person say that it's meaningless. But here's why. Because normally when you and I say wisdom, we say, like, we need to apply wisdom to life. What we really mean is we need to be able to see the predictability of life. Because if I'm wise, I'll be able to know how things are going to turn out, which means predictability, which means control. For most of us, when we mean, I want to be wise, what we mean is I want to really have control over my world. Because I know that if I do this, this is going to happen. If I do this, this is going to happen. Right? Wisdom equals predictability equals control. And all of us in this room are in this boat, right? If you're a Christian here this morning, here's, here's the way this plays out. It plays out in a couple of ways. One way is by seeking to reduce the complexity of life so that we have faith in our certainty 
instead of in our God? Okay? There are two brands of this. One is what, what most of us would, probably some of us in the room are like, yeah, I knew Christians like that. Like, folks who like, are so dogmatic, so sure of themselves, and not just sure of themselves like they believe things strongly. Look, I believe things strongly. That's not what I'm talking about. But to the point at which they think, I'm done knowing. I'm done understanding. I've got this covered. And all I need to do now is convince you of my rightness. Right? That's all that really matters at that point. And some of you are chuckling because I know people like that. Some of you are like, what do you mean? You know? Now, the other side of this, which is the exact same way of doing it, is what is typical of um, folks who are now labeled today as younger evangelicals. I I think the the air quotes are important because I'm not sure that term applies. But uh, these are the folks who, who claim that God is too mysterious to know, except on certain trendy social causes in which he's very clear, but on everything else, not clear at all, right? On all the things that those crazy people over there who are so convinced of their certainty, God's mysterious. On the things that I'm really passionate about, God's very clear. Like, this is what we we do as Christians. We reduce the complexity of the world and we, we line it up to these five Things and we say, this is what God cares about and everything else. But this is what God cares about. And you will know this. You will know it from me. The reality is that both are trying to reduce complexity. Life doesn't fit into that box. But here's the thing. The more I study God's word, the more I try and get to know him... Uh, the more and more I am convinced of the fact that I know less than I think I know. Now, like I said, that does not mean that I don't believe things fervently. I do, very fervently. But it means that I, I don't think I understand them comprehensively. I just believe them strongly, right? There's just so much more to learn. The, my first experience of this happened um, when I, well, quite frankly, it happens over and over and over again. I became a Christian. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I became convinced that I knew this, this, and this. And I went in that direction. And then something happened where something kind of upset the apple cart, and I'm left with, I don't know anything. And then I learned more about this, and then I build up, and I, I know lots, right? And then I head to seminary, which was basically for me, if you're not, seminary is like graduate school for pastor folks. I went to seminary basically thinking, I just need you to write the diploma out, right? Could you just... We could save a lot of money. I'll write you a check. You can write the diploma, and we'll be good, you know? And within, by the end of the first semester, I, 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 I don't know anything. And it happens over and over and over again. Uh, if it hasn't happened with you, it will. The more we study God, the more we see, not that there aren't things we can be sure of, but we are left wondering about our ability to understand them comprehensively. That's the Christian side, but there's the non-Christian side too, right? Because not everyone in this room is Christian. And some of us, though, we're, we are trying to find wisdom through this empirical inquiry of the world, very much like, like our, our teacher here this morning, our preacher. And at best, as we look through empirical inquiry at the world, the best that we can really hope for is an is and not really an ought, right? We can see what is, But understanding what ought to be, we can't do it. But there's a problem. We get angry at what ought to be. Why do we get angry at what ought to be? 
Why do you assume... It, look, look, listen to me. If you're not a Christian this morning, I need you to listen real close. Because this is a serious question. Why do you assume the world should be orderly? Why do you assume the world should work this way? It, if you don't believe in a God that has actually provided meaning to the world, why should you think the world should have any meaning to begin with? The incongruities of life shouldn't be incongruities. You'd be like, hmm. At, at worst, I guess you, you go with Camus, right? And you think oh, the world is absurd. And I'll find joy in that in some way. The reason that we find, them, we find these incongruities, the reason that we rage against these incongruities, are because you and I both know that that is not the way things are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be that way at all. But whether, whether you're a Christian here this morning or a non-Christian here this morning, here's the problem with both ways of trying to find wisdom. They are both problematic because both are trying to do it independently. They're both trying to be independent. Whether you are trying to come up with um, the way the world should work based on your uh, points of dogma or based on your empirical inquiry, both leave out an important factor, the person that gives meaning to the world. Both uh, tend to leave out an overall story that gives the world cohesion. And that is the story that Christianity provides. And so if wisdom can't hold the freight that we're looking for, what can? Here's the thing. The most amazingly, frustratingly, surprisingly, and delightful place in which the incongruities of the world are put on display are not out there. They're right here in the life of a Galilean carpenter from about 2,000 years ago. You and I believe that if you do right, right should happen to you. And yet there, in the life of that man, you saw someone who did everything right, who only loved, who poured out his life for the sake of others, And yet found himself hung on a cross, a Roman cross. There you find someone who did no wrong and yet was punished, if the scriptures are right, for the sake of those who have done everything wrong. And there, in what is the best example of the meaninglessness of wisdom, is ironically the location of what the Apostle Paul tells us is the wisdom of God. Friends, the cross is foolishness because there a story is laid out for us. A story not just of us wanting to be God, but of God becoming us. Right? Because God was not content with losing us as if it was was okay for us to go away. And we we offended him, but he's okay with that. Like many of us are. You're like passive-aggressive, sitting off in the corner, just kind of waiting. I'll get you one day. You're like, God wasn't okay with that. And so, as the story of Scripture continues, he becomes human in the person of Jesus. And he comes and he lives a perfect life, the life that you and I couldn't. Life willing to be dependent on him. A life of true wisdom, seeking out others flourishing. But then he does this amazing thing. Not only does he live a perfect life, but he dies a sinner's death. The death that you and I deserve for our betrayal of God. When we said, I don't need you, God... I don't need you. I want to be you. We betrayed him. The offended God in Jesus actually comes 
and bears the weight of the, uh, of the offense of those who betrayed him. Think about that for a second. The most powerful, independent being in all of, all of the universe who owes nothing to his creation, offended by us, and yet coming to die for us. Just think about that. Because the word that immediately jumps into most of our heads is foolish. Foolish. And yet God says, no, 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 wisdom. The cross is foolishness because there a God who was offended pays for the offense of those who betrayed him. And there a man who did nothing wrong willingly dies in the place of those who hate him. And there, God, in all of his power, decides to deal with our sin, deal with our betrayal by absorbing it on himself and then rising again from the dead to conquer it. Friends, when we look to wisdom, we are left with meaningless. But if we give up our independence and put our faith in God's wisdom, Jesus Christ, wisdom is filled with meaning. If you try and have wisdom apart from Jesus, it's left meaningless. But if you start with Jesus and move towards wisdom, it's filled with meaning. Why? Because biblically, wisdom isn't looking at how the world works. Like I said, the world doesn't work. The world isn't a machine. God works it. In the, in the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, uh, these things aren't like, okay, so you read the Proverbs and you're like, okay, uh, by justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Okay, so I just need to not exact gifts. I don't tax anybody. Like, that's not what Proverbs are for. Biblical wisdom literature is there not to give you the code to become wise, but to form you into the kind of people that will make wise decisions. But that has got to begin with Jesus Christ. Because until then, you and I are still convinced, I don't need God, I want to be God. And until we've laid aside that presupposition, wisdom will always be folly to us. It will always be folly to us. The starting point is giving up our illusion of rightness, giving up our rebellion, and returning to the Lord who made us through Jesus. And when we do that, something very interesting happens. It frees us to not need control. You remember what I said? Wisdom equals uh, predictability equals control. If you know that the God whom you offended, was willing to die to secure your life in him. There's no, why, why do you need control? There's no reason for it. You no longer need control because the one who is in control is worthy of your trust. The gospel frees you to seek wisdom in him instead of just seeking to be wise to create meaning. Let me conclude really quickly. The strange thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it consistently presents us with a, a common refrain, right? We've talked about that. Meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. And it consistently leaves us there until like the last few verses. But because we live on this side of the cross, we have, we have a broadened perspective. That the meaninglessness that the, that the preacher of Ecclesiastes pours himself into, that he, he declares over and over and over again, is the way the world is, but it is not the way the world was meant to be. 
And so as we look to Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, we are freed to see that wisdom filled with meaning, the meaning that we were actually created for. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to you, we we need you to press the gospel into our hearts, to give us grace, to help us see that who you are is greater than who we think we are. And as we look to... uh, look to you, abandoning our attempts at trying to find meaning in the world. Would you give us grace to follow after you, to trust in Christ alone, to not lean on our our endeavors of our ability to figure things out. And in trusting in him, be able to be dependent upon the person who is in all control, who does know the end of all things and who is the embodiment of wisdom. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.